Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable on your sight, O God, our rock and our salvation. Amen. Last Sunday, last week, Pastor Tiemann focused his message on one person in the life of Christ, and that was Nicodemus. Pastor Tiemann cited a narrative from the third chapter of the Gospel of John. This morning, I will focus my thoughts on the next chapter immediately following, and I'll focus my thoughts and my message on another person in Jesus' life, the woman at the well. The contrasts between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman are dramatic and are almost surely intentional. I don't know that you could paint a more stark contrast between any two people. He was a man, she was a woman. He had a name, she was nameless. He was a Jew, she was a Samaritan. He was a respected religious leader, she was a religious social outcast. He was an up-and-comer, she was a down-and-outer. He came by night, she came in daylight. He can't get past religious boundaries. She's willing to go wherever Jesus led. I have to think that John, hearing himself and then later writing down the entire gospel that bears his name, intended to put these two narratives together for dramatic reasons, for dramatic effect. It's like John was saying, good people get saved the same way bad people do. Women get saved the same way men do. Poor people get saved the same way rich people do. In every case, they come to Jesus Christ by faith, by faith in what he did, his life, his death, his suffering, his resurrection, and now his ascension. And maybe, maybe, John asks a question from last week. John asks a question you remember when Pastor Tiemann, perhaps, preached last Sunday, he gave us, in the speech that Jesus gave to Nicodemus, that great gospel in a nutshell, right? For God to love the world, that he gave his only son. And it's almost like John is asking, now who exactly does Jesus mean when he says the world? And, and John is giving us this narrative as if to say, you want to know who the world is? Let me tell you the story of the bad Samaritan, and he does. Bad Samaritans are part of God's children as well. Jesus chose, uh, Jesus chose quite an example for his teaching when he chose this person and when he engaged with the woman at the well. Let me explain that. She had the wrong face. She came from the wrong race. And she found herself in the wrong place. She came from the wrong race. Or rather, she had the wrong face first. She was a woman. And, and while some women in Jesus' ministry did rise to prominence, and they did, a few of them, a few of them even became the first witnesses to the resurrection, for the most part, on balance, the life of a woman in first century Judea, Palestine, 2,000 years ago, could be harsh. And let's just say it, in Old Testament times, in New Testament times, misogyny was alive and well 
in more than a few places. She had the wrong face. She had the wrong race. She was a Samaritan, which in our language today might suggest that she was a half-breed. I'll explain that. I'll explain about 400 years of Israel's history in a couple of sentences here. The religious state of Israel flourished, first under Saul, then under David, then under his son Solomon. But somewhere around the year 900, things started falling apart. Prior to that, the nation, the religious state was unified. Somewhere around 900, there was a kind of a civil war and the nation split. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. 200 years about approximately later, around 700 B.C., the Assyrians attacked the northern kingdom, absolutely demolished it, wiped it off the face of the earth. The people there were forced into exile, and they were dispersed all over the known regions of the world at that time. Gradually, some of them filtered back to where they used to live. And then when they filtered back there, they started intermarrying, not only with the Assyrians, but with other people from other nations. And they started adopting some of their culture and even adopting some, they adopted some of their worship practices. Now later, about another 150 years later or so, the southern kingdom was destroyed. In that case, the people of Judah, when they were dispersed and sent into exile and to the diaspora, and they were, pretty much stayed together. They kept their own worship place in Jerusalem, the worship of the only God, Yahweh, as they knew it, and their cultures and their customs. So that, by the time of Jesus, Jews and Samaritans were drastically different. Separate capitals separate sacred mountains, and separate worship centers. And they despised each other. And it went deep. Can you say, can you, can you see, can you see former President Trump and present President Biden sitting down at a dinner in Washington this coming Wednesday night, right next to each other, and not only sitting there, but sharing the same dessert, and not just sharing the same dessert, but sharing the same spoon, yeah, that's not going to happen, right? Or AOC and Senator Cruz doing the same thing. Likely? Yeah, probably not. Probably not. So now when this woman at the well sees Jesus asking for a drink of water from the same dipper, probably, you can kind of understand what was going on. It is said that the Jews in one of their prayers at one time even prayed that the Samaritans would not share in the resurrection. Man, that's cold. That's cold. So, wrong face, wrong race, and now wrong place. Stranger danger here. Stranger danger. A woman was not to meet a man other than her husband or a member of her extended family away from anywhere, any, anybody else in public. It just, just wasn't done, wasn't supposed to be done. But here she was, a Samaritan woman, meeting a male Jew unknown to her in the middle of the day, and it's just the two of them, best we know. And my understanding is that this is a social rule, a custom, a religious custom in 
many parts of the Middle East and some populations even today. Wrong face, wrong race, wrong place. On top of that, she was five times married. Five times married. And at that time, and probably for 2,000 years since then, most people have put her in a certain bucket. She's a, a loose woman, kind of free with her favors. She gets around, pure as a driven slush, and all that sort of thing that we say. I'm not entirely convinced that that bucket fits. I learned something about buckets and how people put people, other people into buckets about a week ago, at least the buckets some people try to. I was talking with my older brother and I mentioned that my wife and I were thinking of going on a cruise maybe later this year in, in light of a special anniversary and, and he said to me, Stu, you know that the only people who take cruises are the newlywed, the overfed, and the nearly dead. And I'm thinking, man, I, I'm not newly wed, and I don't think I'm overfed, but that puts me in the bucket of the, yikes, that's kind of harsh, that's kind of harsh. But we put this woman in a bucket, don't we? Right? Married five times. Not likely that all of them died. Most likely most of them divorced her. Now she was on number six, and apparently they forgot to get married. Here's why I mention all this. She may not have been a model citizen. And, and if you as a male were planning to bring her home to meet your parents because you were thinking maybe she was going to be number six, you'd want to stage that very carefully and have all your talking points in line. But there very likely were some mitigating circumstances to this lady's life. When it came to marriage and divorce, the Jewish teachers of the day correctly went to Scripture, and in particular Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, to see what was allowed. And, and again, because of the customs, and we have to admit there's misogyny going on there, the same thing would not have been true for a woman, but it was for a man, so here we go. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 clearly said that a man could divorce his wife for any unseemly thing in New Testament English translation, in, in Old Testament New, uh, English translation, for some unseemly, unseemly thing. So what would an unseemly thing be? Well, depends on who you ask. Women could be divorced for reasons serious or silly. Let me ex explain that. In, in one case, uh, a rabbi, a Hebrew teacher, a Jewish teacher said, Shammai says it can only be in the case of something real serious, like desertion or unfaithfulness. Well, we get that. But another rabbi, Hillel, lowered the bar and said, well, actually, if she burns the dinner, that's enough. I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, say that three times, and she's gone. And then apparently, there may have been, may have been another rabbi, Akiva, who lowered the bar even further, even lower, and said that even if a man simply finds someone more beautiful than his wife, well, see ya. Which leads me to think that she may not have been the tramp she's often made out to be. 
Now, to be fair, at the very least, she looked for love in all the wrong places. She was a wounded woman because of that. Now, whether the wounds were self-inflicted or inflicted by somebody else, she had a wound. Now, if this nameless woman is us, and if we are that nameless woman, which is often the case in the New Testament, we're all wounded, aren't we? Dig deep enough, far enough, long enough, we're all wounded. Tim Keller, in one of his excellent writings, would have said to the woman, there is no evil that the Father's love cannot pardon. There is no sin that is a match for his grace. And friends, you and, I do hear, you and I need to hear that as well. There is no evil that the Father's love cannot pardon. There is no sin that is a match for his grace. So here you have the woman. Now comes Jesus, who shatters convention and begins a conversation. Setting the stage a little bit, the woman is probably lost in her thoughts, beaten down by the midday sun, sweat stinging into her eyes. She sees a man at the well, takes a deep breath, braces herself and makes sure not to make eye contact. And then Jesus starts talking to her. Not only does Jesus chat with a woman, a big no-no, not only does he chat with a woman who is an ethnic outsider, a bigger and bigger no-no, not only does he chat with a woman who's had five husbands in public, there aren't enough no-nos for that one. And yet this is the longest conversation that Jesus had with anyone as recorded in any of the Gospels. Go figure. Jesus identified the woman's needs and in his conversation pointed to how her needs could be resolved and satisfied. All humans have needs, many needs. The need to be self and secure, safe and secure, the need to grow, the need for connections. Jesus encountered this woman and understood her unique needs, the need for purpose in life, the need to be loved, the need to be forgiven, the need to know where she was going. Now, she apparently looked for answers to her needs in relationships, and she wound up hurt. Said her Lord and said our Lord, I am the one who can provide whatever you need. Come to the one who satisfies the thirst. The Christian church believes and teaches. The Christian church has always believed and taught that we find the answers to our deepest longings, the resolution to our deepest thoughts and hurts, to our most profound questions in the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where do I find worth? How do I make sense of my life? Where can I find love? Where can I find forgiveness? How does this all end? Whether we have one or two or three strikes against us, Jesus wants to talk with us. 
No amount of success, no amount of admiration, no amount of things, no amount of romantic love can satisfy certain longings. Given the time change this morning, the synapses of my brain don't necessarily fire as well as they should, and maybe that's the case for you as well this morning. But, but let me quote an extended passage from C.S. Lewis, and, and go with me, because what C.S. Lewis said is so spot on for what's going on with the story of the Good Samaritan. Here I quote, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for that desire exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Closed quote. Because of Jesus Christ, we are made for this world and for a more abundant life in it. And we are also made for another world, for the real thing. Our spirit longs for that world. Our heart aspires to that world where things are as they ought to be. In the story of the bad Samaritan, Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. In one of the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Stay thirsty, my friends. Amen. <clears throat> As we prepare to lift up our petitions to the Lord in prayer, let me direct